Let's turn to God's word. This is uh, Genesis 16. Uh, This was, uh, you know, I wish I'd had more time. This is a really beautiful, powerful passage. Uh, It was really a joy to study. And uh, so let's read together. This is God's word to you because you're his people and because he loves you. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand uh, against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you um, are a God who is not far off. You are not far off from those who are outside. You are not far far off from the broken, uh, from the sinful, from the abused. And you draw near to us. And uh, we see in this passage uh, your tenderness, your gentleness, your wisdom. We pray that uh, as we look at this passage, your spirit would lead our hearts to be in awe of you and to worship you and to be thankful that we are yours and that our God is a good God who can be trusted. So I pray that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, this past week, uh, our family, we had a, uh, it was a movie night, it was split up into two movie nights, where we watched a, a movie called uh, Soul Surfer, 
um, which some of you will probably have seen. I, uh, uh, Lucy has been begging me to get this movie for uh, maybe a, a month or something. She knows exactly the red box that has it, and every time we drive by it, she wants Soul Surfer. It's, if you don't know the story, it's about it's actually a true story about a young gal. She's a surfer, and she had her arm uh, bitten off by a 14-foot tiger shark. And uh, the story's about she goes on and teaches herself to um, uh, surf with one arm, and I, I think she eventually wins a, a national championship. She's still going. She's still going. She's a pro. So um, it's a true story. It's actually it's very inspiring, and, and I you know I can't even though the first half of the movie I was kind of mocking the movie and not you know oh why are we watching this I I have to confess I almost cried about five <laughs> times at the end. So I can't knock uh, I can't knock the movie too hard. But uh, you know, I will tell you, this is a movie that clear, was clearly made by Christians. You know, there's little you know, Bibles show up throughout the movie and uh, mission trips and, and uh, youth group leaders and church services. And uh, it's clearly um, Christians who are, who are kind of in the mainstream wanting to give an introduction to the Christian faith. This is what Christianity is about. And I'll tell you that largely the message that comes out is that um, with God, you can do anything. Anything's possible with God. And, um, and you know, uh, as you watch the movie, the, the movie is, uh, is, and listen, again, it, it's a very inspiring story, so I, I don't mean to knock this, but I just want to make a few observations that I just watched this this week, is the movie is filled with beautiful, um, you know, blonde people who can do flips off of docks and, and go, uh, go surfing, and it's a family, everyone's laughing, everyone loves each other, you know, conflicts are very quickly resolved, you know, oh, hey, I'm sorry, hey, let's shake and, and make up and let's get back to surfing, you know, and it's very, uh, very simple picture of, uh, of family life, and, and, and as a Christian movie, where Christians are saying this is what uh, Christianity is about, its largest saying is that God wants me to be moral, uh, talented, and good-looking, and be strong enough to overcome any adversity. That's what God, that's, if I become a Christian, that's what my life's going to be about. Moral, good-looking, talented, and overcoming adversity. And I'll tell you that as Christians, you might know this, we are absolutely hungry for stories like that. And the reason is because for most of us, we desperately want the gospel to be that we don't have to live a flawed life. We don't have to have blemishes in our life. And so we expect that if God is going to write a book and it's going to be full of stories, it's going to be full of stories like Soul Surfer about uh, beautiful moral people who overcome adversity. Which, and again, let me just say this is a true story. It's a beautiful story. But I'm, I'm talking about this depiction of it in, uh, in the movie. And, uh, and yet, here we have in Genesis 16 is God's book. The beginning of God's book in the book of Genesis. And we find a very different kind of story. Um, it's a deeply abusive and a deeply dysfunctional family. Um, Sarah tells her husband Abraham to go sleep with her servant so that she can get a baby out of it. When the servant does get pregnant, Abraham says, listen, I don't want anything to do with this. Don't bother me with this mess. Okay, do what you want with her. He doesn't protect her. He doesn't care for her. And she basically is forced to just flee homeless, poor, and with, with nothing. And this, these are the kind of stories that we have uh, uh, in the Bible. And um, 
why does God give us stories like this instead of stories like Soul Surfer? Why is this the kind of story we get? I mean, uh, and as Christians, it's not the kind of story we want to hear. Why does he give us these kind of stories? You have a controlling wife, an abdicating husband who's uninvolved and not saying anything. Uh, you have a young girl who's being taken advantage. Why is God giving us these kind of stories? Because this is real life. Soul Surfer is not real life. And what we have is all of these things, all of the characters that we encounter in this story, each one of us, probably in our immediate family, uh, maybe with our parents, maybe in our marriage, maybe in people we know, this are the real things that are happening in the world. This is the kind of situation that the world is full of. And the question we're asking is, how does God deal with that kind of situation, that kind of reality? And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, a, a movie, movies that tell us moral stories about being talented and being a good person give us very two-dimensional, very cut-out, you know, paper cut-out cardboard images of people that you just don't find in real life. The Bible is so real to life. And what we find in this text is I feel, I, I, I see in, these, in these, this short little story, these little 16 verses, far more depth of understanding humanity and the, uh, the profundity of God's grace in just 16 verses than in two hours of Soul Surfer. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, look at this passage and see that the Bible never gives us an unblemished person or an unblemished family anywhere in the whole thing except for the Lord Jesus. There is no one who is unflawed. And what I want to do is I want to look at each of these four characters. Sarah, the controlling wife. Abraham, the abdicating husband. Hagar, the abused woman. And Jesus, the listening Lord. And uh, what we'll find in this passage is that the gospel does not give you a promise of a life that is not flawed, a life without blemish, a life without sin. It promises you the grace of God in the midst of that. And I promise you, you'll find a way deeper, way more abiding, and a may, way more real joy in that than uh, in the kind of uh, surface moralism um, that many of us are hungry for. I'm hungry for that. I mean, I can, see, I, I can see that in myself. Tell me how to be a good person. Tell me how to have a life without blemishes and without flaws. That's what I want from church. And it, there's, it's not on offer. God is not offering that to you. You are going to sin your whole life. And what you need is a God of grace who's going to work through you despite your sin, despite your flaws, okay? So let's look at these four characters together. Um, the first being Sarah, the controlling wife. Now, um, the passage begins by saying, now Sarai, and again, uh, Sarai and Abram, their names get changed later in the, in the story, so I'll refer to them as Sarah and Abraham, but it's the same people, Sarai and Abram. Now, Sarai... Excuse me. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Um, this is kind of the title, the beginning of the story. And uh, in our culture, you know, even in our culture, it, it's very, uh, it's a very painful thing to want to have children and not be able to. And if you take that pain and you go into Sarah's culture, Sarah lives in a, in a, a traditional culture where uh, your identity is basically formed by your community. You know, in our, in our culture, your identity, who you are, are you, is your life worth anything? Are you doing something meaningful with your life? Is based on you as an individual. What can you produce as an individual? Like, uh, you know, just, I, I've been watching, reading stuff about Steve Jobs passed away, I, I think it was this last week. Um, 
and uh, different eulogies. I've been watching some videos about him. And, and Steve Jobs is very much, he says, listen, you, have, you need to be an innovator. There are all kinds of uh, dogma and rules about how to do things. And Steve Jobs is like, that's not how I became who I was. I broke all the rules and I followed my heart. And, and, uh, and in our culture, that defines your identity. It's not your, your traditional culture. It's not your extended family defines who you are. It's, uh, it's what you can do as an individual, right? Sarah's culture is very different. Sarah's culture, your worth is based on your contribution to the community. And if you're a woman, a married woman, your contribution is to produce babies. Give us babies. And so Sarah, when it says that Sarah had given Abraham no children, this was uh, an assault on her very identity, the very sense of purpose in her life. And so what Sarah says is she makes... Um, uh, a declaration that I don't care what anyone says, I am not going to be a childless woman. Period. I'm not, I'm not going to be worthless. I'm not going to be a, a waste to my community. I am not going to be a childless woman no matter what. And out of that declaration, Sarah begins to engineer uh, her plan, her dream for what her life should be. She begins to control things and her husband and this maidservant, she begins to use them as pawns to engineer a plan to create the life and the picture and the dream for her life that, that, uh, that she has. And um, it says in verse 3, so, um, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. You can see Sarah's doing all the acting. Everyone else is kind of passive. Sarah is in the middle, the matriarch. I've got a plan for everyone, and you're going to do, you, I'm going to orchestrate things the way uh, I want them to be done. And she's so desperate that she doesn't realize that she's absolutely destroying her family. She's having her husband sleep with her maidservant. She's giving, uh, her, giving her to his embrace. And, you know, I should mention that, uh, you know, commentators say that this, this kind of action where you take a maidservant, she has a baby for, you know, a, a barren woman, as was pretty common. Both we have a Babylonian and Assyrian documents that, that say that this was fairly common in the ancient Near East. Um, and a lot of people said, well, does that mean the Bible endorses polygamy? That it's, you know, there, was all the, there were all these patriarchs and they were having multiple wives and and Solomon had all these wives. And as the Bible say, it's okay to, for, to have multiple wives. I tell you, every single place in the Bible where a guy takes more than one woman, it's always a disaster. It, it's always a lose-lose. It's never a happy situation. And the reason, actually, the reason the Bible never explicitly condemn, you know, forbids polygamy, because if, if a guy has several wives, and he says, oh, I guess I'm only allowed to have one, guess who loses out on that deal? The two wives who get kicked out. <laughs> so now they're, they're wives who've already been with a the man. Uh, they have no one to provide for them. And so the Bible says, listen, if you have multiple wives, you, uh, in that culture, you better provide for them. But it is always a bad situation. And here, uh, um, Sarah is going against God's plan for one man and one woman, and it's going to be a disaster. And I'll tell you that she has a picture for her family of this is how I want my family to be. And it's not going that way. So she's going to force it to happen. And probably the last thing that she wanted to have happen happens is she has total isolation. She has isolation from her husband. You know, she's jealous. She says, you know, I gave this woman to you. And now, you know, she's looking on me with contempt. And she's isolated from her maidservant. She starts dealing harshly with her. And they're alienation, alienated from her. And let me just tell you that that's always when we have a dream for our life, a dream for our family. And we try to take control and make 
things happen, according to our plan, according to our engineering, it always results in alienation and isolation, and it's a destruction of relationships. And let me just tell you, I do want to speak to the gals uh, in our church, because the Bible says that um, a part of sin in a gal is that there, there's going to be a desire in you to take control, especially in the context of a family, that I want to make things uh, according to my dream. And, uh, and I, I think this, this is a warning, um, that that desire is in you. And what we see from this passage is why did Sarah think she needed to take control of her family and begin uh, using her husband as a pawn and a maidservant as a pawn? Why was she doing that? And you look uh, in verse 2, we get a little glimpse into Sarah's heart. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. At the root of Sarah's desire to be in control of her family and uh, make everyone do things according to her dream for her family was her belief, God is against me. God is not good. God will not protect me. God will not provide for me. And, uh, and, so, if I, uh, and so if I go along with God's plan, then um, it's going to be disaster. It's going to be misery for me. I'm going to have no life. And so that's why she has to take control. And we have to understand that at the root of us wanting control in a family or in relationships is that we don't believe that God will provide for us, that he is good. We don't believe God's promises, that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he is working things for our good. Okay? Um, now, why doesn't Sarah know God's promises, God's care for them. Why doesn't she know that? Well, this leads us to the second character in this little scene, uh, in this dysfunctional family, um, is the abdicating, uh, Abraham the abdicating husband. Now, uh, let me, I want to tell you a little, let me give you a little uh, Hebrew, Hebrew lesson here on Hebrew literature. There's something called a chiasm that shows up everywhere in the Bible, which is a literary structure that uh, biblical writers use um, when they're telling stories. And I'll tell you how it works. Um, if you read through the life of Abraham, in the beginning of uh, the story of Abraham, he had, there's a scene where Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. And Abraham uh, lies to Pharaoh and says, oh, she's my sister. And, uh, and so Pharaoh takes her, for, as, takes her into his harem. And it's kind of a disaster. This same scene happens again in Abraham's life in chapter 20. At the end of his life, except they are going into a Gerar with Abimelech. But it's the same thing. He tells the guy, oh, she's my sister, and he takes her for a wife. It happens again. Right after that first story, in chapters uh, 12 and 14, uh, Abraham intercedes for Lot and Sodom. And the same thing, uh, uh, later in the story, Abraham prays for Lot and, and Sodom and tries to save them and talks to God and rescues them. There's this repetition. Chapter 15, the chapter right before this one, God makes a covenant with Abraham. The chapter right after it, chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. There's this repetition. It's a concentric circles. And this story is the centerpiece of those concentric circles. Do you get what I'm saying? There's this kind of literary structure. And when, in Hebrew, when Hebrew authors do that, usually the central story in that concentric st structure is the highlight, is the, um, the climax of the story. This is the centerpiece in Abraham's life. And uh, it says in the end of verse 2, listen carefully to this, this little phrase. In the end of verse 2, it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian 
uh, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, if you know the Bible, I don't know if that little phrase sounded familiar at all. But that exact uh, Hebrew construction shows up in Genesis 3, where it says, Adam listened to the voice of his wife, and Eve took of the fruit and gave it to Adam. It's the exact phrases that are being used again. And uh, so what this is, is Abraham is living out again the fall of humanity, where Adam uh, abdicated his responsibility as a husband, was not pro- protecting his husband, you know, his, or his wife, sorry. Uh, um, Adam was not uh, protecting his wife, his wife's being deceived, and he's sitting there silently doing nothing, not caring for her, and he's just saying, whatever, I'll do whatever. He's just kind of quiet and passive. And um, I'll tell you two things that are missing from Abraham in this story. For one, Abraham has no voice. And two, Abraham takes no responsibility for himself. Um, First, you see that Abraham has no voice. Um, Now, I want to do a little comparison between the Adam and Eve story. If you know the Adam and Eve story, uh, um, God had told Adam, uh, you're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After God tells him that, God makes Eve. And then Eve is the one who's being deceived. And the serpent's saying, you know, you should eat of the, the knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God. And Adam's sitting there not saying anything. Adam was the one who had talked to God about the knowledge of good and evil. He was the one who was supposed to tell her. Listen, God's given us all the, all the trees everywhere else. You don't need to eat of that. He's given us everything. Uh, let's trust God. Same thing's happening here. Sarah doesn't know. She doesn't know in her heart that God is going to uh, provide a son for them. What, if you were here last week, Abraham had that same question. He asked God, you know, what's the deal? I don't have a, I don't have a son. You said I was going to have a son. Where is he? And what does God do? He takes him outside and he shows him all the stars in the sky. He says, Abraham, look at all the stars. If you can even count them. You can't even count all the stars. But your descendants are going to be more abundant than all the stars in the sky. And so when Sarah is saying, the Lord is preventing me from having, the Lord is against me. I, sh- I can't trust God. God's not on my team. What should Abraham have done? He should have taken her outside. <laughs> He should have showed her all the stars. He said, listen, I was having those same questions you're having. <laughs> and this is what God did. He took me outside. He showed me all the stars. He's going to give us descendants like this. We've got to trust him. And then he should have gone through their story. He should have said, you remember when we were in Egypt? Everything was a disaster. What did God do? He provided for us. And remember, you know, the decision with Lot and, uh, and, and God took us to the right land. And, and when we were fighting uh, the kings, Chedorlaomer of Elam, God provided for us, and we won the victory. And he should have just been listening out. He should have been speaking to her the promises of God. God had put Abraham in Sarah's life to speak to her the promises of God. There was nothing on Abraham's mouth as a husband. It was his responsibility to know the promises and to assure his wife of this is God's provision for us. And he said nothing. He was silent. He was passive. And he said, whatever you want to say, uh, I'll do it. Fine, you want me to sleep with this little girl? This girl, all right, uh, you know, twist my arm. Fine, I'll go do it. And, uh, and, it, and it's a disaster. So Abraham has no voice. But secondly, he also takes no responsibility. Um, you know, after Abraham takes Hagar and he gets her pregnant, and uh, it says in verse 6, uh, Abraham, uh, and Sarah starts blaming Abraham for it. And this is what Abraham says in verse 6. Listen to the you. Listen to how many times he says you, you, you. Behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. 
Abraham is in the middle of this mess, and he says, listen, you deal with it. Now, I'll tell you, I read this, and it's frightening to me that I, I hear myself in that. I mean, I haven't had this scenario. Family situation happened in my family, thank God. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, this thing of like, listen, you deal with it. Um, I don't want to make any decisions. I don't, I, please just don't ask me for advice on what we should do. And, I, you know, internally, this kind of thing, like, la, 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 la. I don't want to be involved, right? I, I know this conversation with my wife. And the thing is that <laughs> because we're sinners, marriages are just a disaster waiting to happen. Because on the one hand, the wife has something inside of her that says, I need to grab control of this situation. And the husband has this also, he has this thing going on inside of him. La, 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 la. I don't want to make a decision. I don't want to talk about this. Can we talk about this later? Can, uh, can you figure it out and then the very last case scenario, come and talk to me and then maybe I can, I can make a decision? That's what we got going on inside of us. <laughs> and uh, so here, um, in, in the, biggest, um, the biggest problem that Abraham has is he does not want to take responsibility for his family. And especially when his family is in crisis and things are not working properly, he doesn't want to step into it. He's unwilling to step into it. He's willing, unwilling to even talk about it. I don't even want to talk about it. You figure it out. And I'll tell you, um, Abraham's gotten a girl pregnant, and he's refusing to take any responsibility for it. And, you know, I'll tell you, by the way, this is one of the reasons why the Bible doesn't forbid polygamy is when this kind of situation happens, is the Bible says, Abraham, you better take care of that girl. You better make sure she has food. You better make sure that baby's taken care of. This is, was a bad decision. This was not God's will for you to have that girl, but you better take responsibility, you better own what you're doing, and he doesn't. And so um, the centerpiece of, of, here's the chosen couple, right? Abraham and Sarah, <laughs> the cho- God's chosen couple, and uh, in, the, in the centerpiece of their life, this is the centerpiece moment. It's surrounded by the covenants. Last, last week, Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abraham. Next week, Genesis 17, God's covenant with Abraham. And right in the middle, is a miserable failure and a disaster, a deeply dysfunctional family. And I'll tell you, um, these are not cardboard two-dimensional. It's just a few verses. And there is is realness to these characters, realness to our lives. And the sad thing is, is who takes the brunt of the consequences for this dysfunctional family? Who, Who does the disaster fall on? Who does the hurt fall on? And it's really not Abraham and Sarah. Um, Their family is a place where people are getting hurt. And here we meet the third character in this uh, um, blemished, flawed uh, family. It's Hagar, who's the abused woman. Now, back in Genesis 12, you know, I mentioned that uh, Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. And Abraham had told Pharaoh... Uh, oh, she's my sister. Uh, Sarah's my sister. And Pharaoh took her as a, uh, as a wife. Well, after uh, God delivered them out of Egypt, and it says in there that they took, uh, took with them all kinds of uh, animals and riches and men servants and maid servants. One of them was Hagar. And um, we don't really know much about Hagar and her involvement in Sarah's scheming. Um, you know, maybe Hagar thought, okay, uh, Sarah will give me to Abraham, and uh, now maybe I could get pregnant. Maybe I could get the upper hand over Sarah. Maybe this would be a good situation. Maybe this would be a status approval. Maybe she's horrified. I mean, Abraham's 86, right? I mean, she's a, she's a slave girl, and here's an 86-year-old guy 
and a, a matriarch, a controlling matriarch who is forcing her into this relationship. There's no sense that Hagar had any say in this kind of, uh, in, in this arrangement. And the thing that's, you know, chilling about this is that throughout this passage, Sarah and Hagar never refer to Hagar by her, uh, Sarah and Abraham never refer to Hagar by her name. She's always the servant, the maidservant. It's never Hagar. She is just a nameless piece of trash for them to do whatever they want with. She uh, uh, is, is, is less than human. She is owned by them. She's a slave. And in reality, she is an image bearer made by God with dignity, worth, and value. And the, the uh, wicked decisions of a controlling wife who doesn't believe that God will provide for her and a husband who won't take responsibility um, all the pain of that, all the damage of that is landing on her. And, uh, and it says in verse 6 that then Sarah uh, dealt harshly with her and she fled uh, from her. So the situation is so intolerable that Hagar uh, has no choice but to leave uh, alone and homeless. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you... Um, sorry, hold on. I'm losing my place here. Um, Let me just say that um, some of you, I know that even from speaking to some of you, some of you have, have either grown up or you have lived in homes or in contexts um, where you have been treated like that. Uh, you're not talked to. Uh, a father who maybe would not take responsibility for you, would not be engaged, had no voice, spoke none of the goodness of God and promises into your life. Uh, maybe you felt nameless. One of the things that's so tragic about this story and so tragic um, about uh, abuse in our, in, in our culture, in our world, is that it didn't only just make Hagar sad. It didn't just make her depressed. It went further than that. The damage went further than that, that it also made her sinful. And this is one of the tragic things, is that she's been stuck into this context where she's mistreated by God's chosen people and look at the spirit that comes out of her. Um, you can see this again in verse 4. It says, he, uh, Abraham went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So she's been taken advantage. She has no reason uh, to love anyone. And what that produced in her is actually a viciousness. You know, uh, this is a sore spot for Sarah, right? She doesn't have a baby. She's been trying for decades to get pregnant with Abraham. Here's Hagar with hardly even trying, one time, all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And she's flaunting her pregnant belly in front of uh, Sarah, just saying, oh, um, Abraham, you want to massage my feet for me? You know, you want to uh, see the baby kicking? And she just knows that this is a soft spot for Sarah, and she's just sticking her thumb in it, and she's just grinding it in, and she's like, I'm going to make you pay. And that her... You know, her being abused now has actually gone even past just making her sad, but it's now made her vicious. And this is like, here, here you have a family that you're talking about, um, you know, level red nuclear cat fight that is going on between Sarah and, uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar. And um, um, And let me just say that this setting, this is tragic setting, this tragic family is the setting that God walks into. 
And it's really at this point that enter, enter the hero. Where's the hero in this story? Where's the one we're supposed to say, that's, that's what I want to grab on? Where's the hope, right? Where's the hero? Enter the hero, Jesus the listening Lord. And into this sad scenario, you know, after Hagar leaves, it says in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Now, um, that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Bible, there, you know, there's a lot of angels in, in the Bible. And, you know, whenever an angel uh, shows up and someone starts worshiping the angel, what do people say? What does the angel say? Like, no, 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 no. You got this wrong. This is, I'm not, I'm not God. Get off your face. You know, I'm a creature just like you. Stop worshiping me. But in the Bible, when the angel of the Lord shows up, for some reason, it's a very different situation. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord, when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's the Lord speaking. And uh, actually, you see that here. The angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar, and it says in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. It was like, wait, I thought it was the angel who spoke to her. And, and she refers to him as the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is worshipped in other places and treated as if he is God. And what theologians have said is when you see the angel of the Lord show up in the Old Testament, this is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, coming down and meeting with people in the Old Testament before his incarnation. And here is Jesus going out, and it says that he found Hagar. Hagar's run away. And we know from this passage, she's running back. Uh, it says that she was in Shur, which uh, she's on her way back to Egypt. Let me just tell you, uh, Hagar is homeless. She has, she's poor. Uh, she's pregnant with a, uh, a biracial baby from an, uh, you know, a guy in another country. And she's trying to go back to Egypt. What is she going to have there? She has nothing. Um, and it says that the angel of the Lord went and found her. And he went and met with her. And he talked with her. And uh, one of the things uh, that we see... Jesus doing whenever he finds a lost person. This is what he says in verse 8. Listen to this. Well, first of all, he said, Hagar. Abraham and Sarah have never referred to her as Hagar. And here's Jesus coming. The first thing he does is he names her. Your name is Hagar. And I'll tell you, actually, of all the known literature that we have from the ancient Near East, all ancient documents, there's not, this is the only record we have of a deity speaking to a woman and addressing her by her name. The only, in, not just in the Bible, in all ancient documents, here's Jesus coming and doing something that's never been done in history, a deity speaking and saying to her, speaking to her by her name. And this is what he says. Uh, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Powerful question. Tell me your story, right? I, I, Jesus comes and he says, tell me your life. Tell me your history. Who are you? What has happened to you? And let me just tell you, by the way, this is a great model for us. If you ever, you know, we have a mission to share the grace of God with the lost, the hurting throughout the world. And, and in Bellingham and in your lives and in your work and in many relationships that God has given to you, I'll always, the beginning of sharing God's grace with people always begins with this question. Who are you? Where have you come from and where are you going? Tell me your story. We can't speak God's grace into someone's life until we know their story, the story uh, uh, that they have lived out. And what we see is that the story has two parts, right? Where you come from and where are you going? And Hagar only answers the first question. She only has an answer. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She knows where she's come from, but she doesn't know where she's going. And uh, she's someone without hope. 
And um, it's into that context. She has no vision for the future. I don't know where I'm going. I'm hopeless. I'm going back to Egypt, but I know I have nothing there. I'm poor. And Jesus meets her and starts speaking the words that Abraham wasn't speaking. He starts speaking promises to her. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of that child. And he tells her to go back to Sarah and Abraham because he knows that God is at work in that family. And the promise is in that family. And he begins to, to talk, uh, talk to her. And he says uh, in uh, verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He's a Lord who listens, who asks questions. That is a God who is walking into our lives. And he is giving, um, he's doing something with our story. And each of us, the reason why the story is, is so pertinent to us is because we are not two-dimensional plastic people. We're all flawed, blemished people that God has brought into his story. He's redeeming what's happened behind us. And he, he is leading us. Somewhere. Each one of us, if you are in Christ, God is making all things right in the earth. And he will restore your, uh, partly in this life now and partly in the life to come, God will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will forgive all of our sins. And... Um, and I'll tell you, uh, you, you know, my, my kids and I have, uh, oh, my kids are coming in here. Uh, Will will know about this. My kids and I have been reading a story called uh, The Railway Children. It's a, by Edith Nesbitt. And uh, it's a story about uh, three young kids who, uh, you know, their father is, is taken away at a young age and they become very poor and they have no father. And they're asking their mother, where, where is our father coming from? And I'm, I'm just going to close with these words that their mother gives to them uh, as an assurance uh, to give them hope and to hold on. And this is what, this is what she says. Uh, Peter put, uh, Peter's mother put her arm round uh, Peter and suddenly and hugged him in silence for a minute. Then she said, Don't you think it's rather nice to think that we're in a book that God's writing? If I were writing a book, I might make mistakes. But God knows how to make the story end just right in the way that's best for us. And what the angel of the Lord is saying to Hagar is you're living in a story and God is going to make it right. Trust him. Go back into that messy family and live there. Not because it's perfect, not because God promises it's going to be perfect, but because you have the promises of God and trust him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the angel of the Lord who came to Hagar. We do pray that you would come to us and you'd help us to tell you where we have been, and to let you speak to us where we are going. Give us hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.